Hi, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. My name is Dr. Kerry Gelb. Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness under the age of 55. Is diabetes genetic or is it lifestyle? Can we reverse diabetes? Can we prevent diabetes? Today, we're going to speak with somebody who's given this topic a lot of thought. His name is Dr. Ted Naiman. He's a board-certified physician, MD, in, in family medicine. He practices in Seattle. He does a lot of research in diet and exercise for health and optimization. He has an undergraduate degree in mechanical engineering, which helps uh, shape some of his theories. He has a great book, which I read, called The PE Diet. Uh, has a lot of pictures, and he, make, he makes a very complicated topic very easy. And his website is Burn Fat, Not Sugar. Thank you for being with me today, Ted. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's, it's good to see you. And I want to thank also, Ted, for two other things. One, he's one of the stars of our film, Open Your Eyes, which hasn't been released yet. It's on hold because of, we're in the middle of dealing with the... Uh, coronavirus pandemic at this point. And he also gave an amazing lecture to my, uh, to my doctor audience. I'm the president of this organization called All Docs. He gave a three hour lecture, which I know it took him a lot of time, put his heart and soul and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, re uh, resources and research. And I just want to thank you for that as well. Oh, wow. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Not too long ago, I made a discovery using new technology for the eye where we could see using uh, uh, imaging of the eye and looking at the capillaries. And now we're looking at the very, very tiny capillaries in the body. And the people have what we call microaneurysms or these little, uh, li these, these little, almost like little bulbs in the blood vessel. We've found through research that it correlates with insulin resistance. And we know that insulin resistance is the cause of diabetes. Now I want to start off with how are the blood vessels in the toe, in the brain, in the heart, in the eye different? Or are they all basically the same? And can we use that? And is it, fair, is it fair to use it as a biomarker like we're using it? Because that's what our research has shown. Yeah, well, I think what happens is you do see these diabetic changes in the microvasculature first in places where your arteries are really tiny and uh, in, a, in a larger artery in a macrovascular setting with a large artery, you might not have a, a crucial uh, change in the vasculature with some sort of the thickening of the artery walls and atherosclerosis. But in the microvasculature, if you have any changes to the vessel at all, uh, the findings are a lot more dramatic because you, the lumen size is so much smaller. Basically, it's easier to screw up those little tiny arteries at the distal end of your vascular tree, you know, the tips of your toes and the retina and these microvascular beds where we start seeing the most damage from hyperglycemia. So we're going to talk about insulin resistance, but tell me what is insulin resistance and in your opinion, what causes it? Insulin resistance is really just 100% for sure energy toxicity, where you've literally tried to store more energy in your body than you have room for. So in other words, you have fat cells in your body that are designed to store energy. 
And if you, your fat cells can expand in diameter. So a, a fat cell might be able to go from 20 microns in diameter up to 200 microns in diameter. And you can store, you know, 4,000 times more fat in a fat cell if it's fully expanded. But all of your fat cells have a maximum size limit. They can only get so large. Once you've filled that fat cell up, your only options are to sprout new baby fat cells and fill them up as well, or the fat has no place to go and it just spills over into your circulation. Insulin resistance is, is a setting where you've reached your maximum personal fat threshold. Basically, there's a genetic limit to how many new fat cells you can sprout. And once you've maxed out that capability and you've filled all your fat cells, you have no place to store more fat energy in your body. And it's literally spilling out into your circulation. So the job of insulin is to keep energy out of your circulation and back in your cells where it belongs. And insulin's chronically high in people with insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia because this energy in their bloodstream has no place to go. This is why um, somebody with insulin resistance, for example, has high triglycerides. Triglyceride is a measure of fat energy in the bloodstream. And triglycerides are chronically high in insulin resistance because that fat energy has no place to go. If you look at a really, really lean person with really small fat cells that are underfilled, they have deflated fat cells and plenty of room for fat storage, their triglycerides are always low. And they could eat a whole bucket of lard and their fat cells will just suck the fat right out of their bloodstream and they'll still have low triglycerides later. Whereas someone who's over fat who's really maxed out all their fat storage if you give them an oral fat tolerance test where they eat fat their triglycerides are elevated for you know hours maybe days all of this fat energy all of this energy is circulating in the bloodstream once the cells are full of fat they also refuse glucose so then you reach this point where your blood sugar is high all the time Two, not just your triglycerides. And at that point, we diagnose people with type 2 diabetes, which is sort of the end stage of insulin resistance or hyperinsulinemia. When you use the word energy, are you using it synonymously with fat? I would refer, so there are multiple fuels in your bloodstream. There's glucose, there's fat, there's free fatty acids, there's triglycerides, there's ketones, there's multiple forms of energy. But because the energy storage in your body is 99.9% .9 fat, I'm mostly talking about fat. Yes, that's, that's basically correct. Even in an uncontrolled type 2 diabetic <clears throat> with really high blood sugar, the amount of actual glucose in their body is pretty tiny. And you're really dealing with uh, a problem of too much fat inside your body. So yeah, I'm mostly talking about fat. If you look at a patient, are there physical signs that you could say right away, this person is most likely insulin resistant? And what would those signs be? Oh, great question. Yeah, thank you. So when you first store fat, you store it as harmless subcutaneous fat. And this subcutaneous fat is no big deal. It's supposed to be there. Uh, you're not going to have any insulin resistance, even if you fill up your subcutaneous fat cells completely. But once you've maxed out all of your subcutaneous fat, it spills over and starts being stored as visceral fat. This is your abdominal fat. And we see this in the abdomen, right about the level of the belly button. 
So you can just glance at someone and, and sort of look at their waist circumference right at the belly button. And the larger that is, the more likely that person is to be insulin resistant. In fact, waist to height ratio, measuring the waist circumference directly at the belly button is one of the most powerful ways to estimate someone's insulin resistance, uh, basically for free and non-invasively. So I love waist circumference as a way of telling if someone's insulin resistant. That's one of the first things you're gonna see if you're just looking at someone. There, there's a lot of other things that you might notice if you look closer, a lot of skin findings in insulin resistance. People, People with insulin resistance will often have skin tags. You see people with skin tags in their neck or their armpit or their groin. These skin tags, uh, the, the skin is growing abnormally fast due to insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1. The uh, other skin findings in insulin resistance are seborrheic keratoses, these sort of raised, waxy, warty brown things that people get as they get older. They tend to grow um, a lot faster in people with chronically high insulin levels and insulin-like growth factor. So some of the the findings that you'd see just looking at someone, uh, acanthosis nigricans, which is a dark discoloration on the back of the neck or on the knuckles or other um, extensor surfaces. So uh, these are just some of the things that you might see when you look at somebody. Now let's go Let's look at the nomenclature of insulin resistance, pre-diabetic, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and then eventually uh, diabetes. Can you take us through the spectrum? Oh, sure. Absolutely. All right. So the, the first thing I want to say <clears throat> is that high blood sugar is the very last thing that you're going to see. It's the very, 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 very end stage of of metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance. So it's really the last thing that, that we find. Uh, we, we define metabolic syndrome with five things. Number one, high triglycerides, fasting triglycerides over 150. Number two, low HDL or good cholesterol, which is less than 40 in men or 50 in women. Number three is waist circumference. Anyone who has a, a waist circumference above a certain size, uh, the, the, so we have high triglycerides, low HDL, abdominal circumference, high blood pressure, and then the very fifth final thing that we start to see is impaired fasting glucose, where your fasting blood sugar goes up. But I would say that 90% of people with metabolic syndrome have normal blood sugar. So by the time your glucose is elevated, which is what most doctors are looking for, you've really had raging metabolic syndrome and hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance for you know, years, maybe decades. So that's, uh, that's metabolic syndrome. It's really this spectrum of energy toxicity where you just get more and more um, ectopic fat storage in your body and you're less and less able to deal with the amount of energy you've consumed. And that's why we see the waist circumference going up, the triglycerides going up, the blood pressure going up, and then last of all, the blood sugar going up. At what point is somebody pre-diabetic? Are they pre-diabetic along the whole spectrum? Or when do we call them pre-diabetic where they're at risk for cancer, cardiovascular disease, retinal hemorrhaging? I know we might be splitting hairs with terminology, but for the people that are listening. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, we just artificially draw lines at what is normal, what is prediabetes, and what is diabetes. So fasting glucose, for example, normal would be 70 to 99 for a fasting glucose. Prediabetes would be 100 to 125. 
if you're 126 or higher, that's diabetes. Or if you're looking at a hemoglobin A1C, normal would be 4.0 to 5.6. Pre-diabetic would be 5.7 to 6.4. And if you hit a 6.5 or higher, we would diagnose you with type 2 diabetes. So we just have this spectrum on fasting glucose and A1C to divide people between normal pre-diabetic and diabetic. And it appears that right now today, 52% of adult Americans are pre-diabetic or diabetic. So the, literally the majority of people who walk into your office are going to be pre-diabetic or diabetic, which is pretty scary. Why don't doctors or most doctors check for insulin or two-hour insulin? I Well, one of the reasons we don't measure actual insulin is that it's fairly labile. It can really jump up or down um, a lot. There's a... Uh, insulin has an incredibly short half-life. It's like maybe eight minutes. So there's a whole lot of noise. If I just checked your insulin level every minute of every day, it would jump up and down a lot. You can also radically affect it acutely with overfeeding or underfeeding. So if we just, if you just fasted for, you know, two or three days, your insulin might drop in half. If you hit the buffet and massively overate for a day or two, your insulin might jump up by maybe even double. So we see these acute, really acute changes. And it's sort of uh, so dynamic and so labile and such a short half-life and so prone to change that it's not the very, very best thing to track. It's almost better to track waist circumference or A1C or triglycerides or something that has a longer um, half-life. That's why you don't see a lot of doctors actually checking insulin levels. Even I myself don't do a whole lot of insulin levels because it, it changes so rapidly. Now I might, uh, I might do one or two just to see how insulin resistant someone is. If I have someone who looks very, very thin, but they seem to have a chronic disease that I would associate with insulin resistance, I might check, you know, one fasting insulin level in that person and then be, you know, shocked to find that it's extremely high and they only look thin because they have almost no fat cells in their body and they've completely hit their personal fat threshold. So in that setting to just do occasionally on certain people as a diagnostic measure, it's pretty helpful, but I never have people, you know, just checking insulin over and over and over and tracking it the way you might an A1C, which is a lot better. Um, It's since it's a longer time scale, it's a lot more practical. And how about triglycerides? You mentioned that as a very early marker for insulin resistance or maybe pre-diabetes. There are certain people that they have high triglycerides, even though they seem to eat, they're on a low carb diet and they're not eating a lot of, and they're not eating a lot of carbohydrates, but their triglycerides still stay high. What would explain something like that? Well, I love triglycerides and honestly, triglyceride is a really, really good way to tell if you have energy toxicity or not. And the reality is you could be on the lowest carb diet on the planet, but if you're still over fat, your triglycerides are going to be elevated all the time. And uh, you, uh, you want to check your triglycerides fasting. You want at least 12 hours fasting, no calories, no coffee, just water. And those should really be under 100. If you're triple digits on triglycerides, you're probably over fat. If you hit 115, then you're just clearly insulin resistant. Uh, 
And what we see is as people get leaner and leaner and have more and more uh, ability to dispose of energy that they eat in the diet, their triglycerides get lower and lower and lower. So <clears throat> if your triglycerides are chronically too high, it usually means you're over fat somehow. You, you basically just want to get thinner, quite honestly. And, and I know you like triglycerides and fasting blood sugar. There are certain people, just their fasting blood sugar is high, but during the day, their blood sugar is totally normal. What would cause something like that? Well, this is, um, we call it physiological insulin resistance or adaptive glucose sparing. So one of the problems with the term insulin resistance is that you become insulin resistant anytime you're not eating carbohydrates. And this level of insulin resistance is really adaptive glucose sparing. It's, it's where your cells are so smoothly running on fat that they're sparing any available glucose for the brain. So for example, if, we, if you were uh, fasting for a month, as you fast longer and longer and longer, days go by, you just get really, really good at being fueled 100% with fat from your fat cells. So all your cells have fat, uh, uh, all your muscle cells, for example, have intramuscular triglycerides coming from your fat stores. And you're, you're so much fueled by fat and ketones that your, uh, your cells will refuse glucose to spare it for the brain. So we'll actually see blood sugar kind of high after an overnight fast because all of your cells are in this fat burning mode and they're refusing glucose. In fact, if you take someone who's fasted for weeks and then feed them carbohydrate, their blood sugar shoots up really, really high into a diabetic range. Um, uh, initially, that goes away after several days once you get you know, used to eating carbohydrate again. But this is, uh, we call it adaptive glucose sparing. It's technically insulin resistant uh, state, but it's a low insulin insulin resistance. So it has nothing to do with high insulin insulin resistance, which is why I prefer the term hyperinsulinemia for people on the prediabetes spectrum. I kind of don't like insulin resistance because anyone who's fasting becomes physiologically insulin resistant. And it's a, it's a low energy state that's totally harmless. So I know that's a super technical and very confusing and a lot of doctors don't even understand that. But this, this insulin resistant idea can be at a low energy state just from an overnight fast, which is where you see your blood sugar higher in the morning, or you can be insulin resistant from hyperinsulinemia, a high insulin, high energy state where you're over fat, and that's where your blood sugar is just high all the time. What does high insulin do to the body? And is high insulin or hyperinsulinemia as dangerous as high blood sugar to the body? Well, insulin itself can be slightly bad. Like in animal models, we've created peripheral, in, uh, peripheral neuropathies by just exposing animals to a ton of insulin and insulin is probably contributing to overgrowth of the vasculature that we see in some of microvascular um, complications so insulin itself can kind of cause tissues to overgrow um, i do think most of the problem in hyperinsulinemia and type 2 diabetes is the energy toxicity and the insulin is just a proxy for that it's just a sign that you're energy toxic. But I, I do think insulin itself, uh, being exposed to too much of it is kind of bad for you as well. Explain how the fat 
all that fat circulating in your blood can be toxic. Well, the exact, uh, the exact mechanism of that really has yet to be fully elucidated. So I couldn't exactly tell you why energy toxicity is so bad for so many tissues in your body. I do know that one of the big problems is that it breaks your mitochondria. So your mitochondria, if, uh, if your mitochondria have too much fuel available and not enough fuel usage, like if you're trying to make ATP and you're not burning ATP, uh, you, you reach a state in your mitochondria where you stall out your electron transport chain and you get too many reactive oxygen species. You literally break your mitochondria and your mitochondria will literally die when it's energy overloaded. And this is just a huge big deal. So uh, a normal weight person, 30% of their body, 30% of the mass of their body is just pure mitochondria. And these are these energy power packs in all of your cells. And you know, every cell has anywhere from dozens to hundreds or thousands of these mitochondria. And they produce 90% of all the energy your body makes. And if you look at anyone who's overweight, pre-diabetic, diabetic, uh, uh, has diabetic parents, anyone on this whole obesity, diabetes spectrum, the thing that we find it, in common is that they have smaller mitochondria, lower mitochondrial contents, worse mitochondrial function, lower energy production. And a lot of these people have broken their mitochondria from energy toxicity. You've had too much energy coming in, especially carbs and fats together. And it, not enough energy expenditure or usage, and this breaks your mitochondria, which is unfortunately a downhill spiral because literally the only way that fat leaves your body is if your mitochondria oxidizes it and you exhale it as carbon dioxide. That is the only way to get the carbon atoms from your fat stores out of your body. So if you have poor mitochondrial function or not enough mitochondria, uh, you just can't even burn that fat. You're really in trouble. And I, this is one of the reasons why we see every single tissue system in the body start to break down from energy toxicity. The mitochondria are at the heart of a lot of it. Um, we know it has to do with reactive ox uh, oxygen species and uh, uh, frequently when mitochondria die, they'll actually kill off the cell with it, apoptosis. But we haven't really worked out all the mechanisms by which this energy toxicity, you know, ends up clogging your arteries and causing so much havoc throughout your body. If we want to improve our if we want to improve our mitochondria, what are some of the best ways to do it? And do you recommend any supplements to help with mitochondria, such as CoQ10 or PQQ or anything like that? Well, one of the best ways is to create a transient uh, energy crisis in your body where you don't have enough energy. Uh, and good ways to do this are uh, high-intensity exercise. If you, uh, if you try to do some really high-intensity exercise, you're putting this huge energy demand on your body, uh, especially if you try to do some really high-wattage uh, some very high wattage exercise, like a rowing machine or something, just the highest intensity you can generate. This puts a huge demand on your body, and you're telling your body, 
uh, if you don't generate more energy, I'm going to die. And then your body responds by literally performing mitochondrial biogenesis in the next few days. You'll literally have more mitochondria after you do maximum intensity exercise. So I love high intensity exercise as a way to stimulate mitochondrial biogenesis. You can also do that by transiently not having enough energy available. And that could be not eating carbohydrate and trying to do high intensity exercise. You're forcing your body to do more with less. Uh, uh, intermittent fasting, uh, just periods of time where you're not not eating or not eating glucose. These are great for mitochondrial biogenesis. So anytime you're uh, creating an energy crisis in your body where you're demanding more energy output or you're not putting as much energy into the system, you're gonna get more mitochondria. And, and then the exact opposite happens where if your energy overloaded and not using any energy, your mitochondria just die off or you're literally killing them. Now as supplements, I don't recommend really any supplements Personally, I never take supplements. I never recommend them. Um, I feel that most people can get them from their food. So I'm not a lot of help on the supplement side. So when you're, when you're treating uh, diabetics and you, you have to go to medication, are you, do you favor medication that uh, make you more insulin sens sensitive without raising your insulin? such as like something like 8-carbos or the SGLT2 inhibitors. Can you talk about your philosophy when you have to go to medication? Yeah, absolutely. Right. So if you took your average uncontrolled type 2 diabetic and you looked at their fasting insulin, it's probably 10 times higher than normal. And after they eat, their insulin might be you know, 50 times higher than uh, 10, I mean, at least an order of magnitude higher than normal. So we just see these incredibly high insulin levels after diabetics eat. And literally the last thing on earth that they need or want is more insulin inside their body. So the absolute worst thing you can do is give insulin to an overweight type 2 diabetic who's already just awash in insulin. And in fact, we know that this worsens outcomes. Uh, All-cause mortality goes up when you add insulin to this overloaded, hyperinsulinemic type 2 diabetic. So you really want anything that removes energy from the system. Um, the SGLT2 inhibitors like Invokana and Jardiance, these are uh, drugs that you basically just pee out 100 grams of glucose a day, right? Uh, this is one of my favorite class of drugs for diabetes because you're literally... Um, just removing energy from the system. Now, could you not do the same thing by just eating 100 grams less carbs a day? Absolutely, and that would be my number one choice. Uh, but uh, if you really did have extreme hyperglycemia and you needed medication, the SGLT2 inhibitors are a great choice. There's a lot of diabetic medications I don't like. Uh, sulfonylureas, which are basically increasing insulin production, not super fond of those. Uh, insulin itself, really not excited about that for type 2 diabetics with high insulin. Um, if they have pancreatic burnout, maybe there's a role for insulin at, at a very late stage. But the vast majority of type 2 diabetics I see have very high insulin levels already and don't need more. 
Metformin's interesting. Metformin is a mitochondrial toxin that poisons complex one of your mitochondria and literally forces your mitochondria to burn more fat and less glucose. Um, you can, it's sort of like low carb in a pill. So I like it for people who are eating like a standard American diet or a high carb diet. I think that once you're on a low carb diet, taking that form is not as helpful and maybe not the greatest. So I have mixed feelings about metformin. Um, but yeah, definitely my favorites are things like acarbose where you're just not absorbing as much carbohydrate. Could you just eat less carbs and get the same effect? Hell yes. Um, and then SGLT2 inhibitors where you're just peeing out glucose. And once again, you could uh, accomplish that by eating less glucose, which is carbohydrate. But I do like those two medications probably the best. How about something like Genuvia, which kind of raises it a little bit? Genuvia, I mean, it's, it's yeah, that one's a little bit more, um, uh, I mean, I, that, I would classify that Genuvia as something that I, that I do like. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what do you think about, as a biohack, continuous glucose monitors? Uh, I love CGMs. This is great. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's really good from a behavioral point of view. I would love to slap a, a Freestyle Libre or something on every diabetic I have because uh, it's it's such good feedback. I mean, you can really immediately see when you've you know overdone something. I mean, a lot of people when they have their continuous glucose data, they're like, oh, wow, I might not eat this whole bag of Doritos. I'll just eat half the bag because my blood sugar goes up so high. So I think it's brilliant feedback. Uh, I love it. Um, a lot of insurance doesn't pay for it, which has been frustrating. And I wish they did because it's so good behaviorally. What do you think about it for someone that's healthy like yourself, just to see what foods negatively affect your body? Would you consider it as a biohack? You know, some people, you know, do it, you know, you know, like Peter Atiyah or one of those type of guys sometimes recommend it for themselves to see, to try to get themselves as healthy as possible. Have you ever thought about that or you think that's kind of overkill? Well, I've, I've played around with them myself and uh, I think most people don't need to do that. I also think it's not, it, 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 okay, let me put it this way. The glucometer is basically telling you not to eat carbs because when you eat carbs, you get this big spike of glucose. But in someone who's really, really lean, let's say you're just super, super thin. Let's say you're uh, uh, some sort of fitness model or bikini model or bodybuilder and you're thin as can be and you have tons of muscle, very empty fat cells, a, a whole lot of glucose disposal, uh, you could eat something that spikes your blood sugar transiently like that, but you dispose of the glucose so fast and you have so much energy disposal that it doesn't really even matter. And a lot of these people can just eat carbs all day long and they have no problems whatsoever from that. And I think that if you were looking at a continuous glucose monitor in these people, you would, you would see these spikes when they eat carbs, but they immediately go away, so it's not a problem. You'd also see huge spikes when pe these people do high-intensity exercise. Like when you're doing an all-out sprint, your blood sugar will frequently go into a, 
a low-grade diabetes range, even if you're just the thinnest, healthiest, least diabetic person on the planet. And so I think someone who was just religiously looking at their glucometer and just religiously saying, oh, wow, look at all these things that spike. I should never do those things. I shouldn't do high-intensity exercise. I should never eat a carb. They're going to get this information that's really not really not that helpful because these things are harmless if you have plenty of energy disposal. You know what I mean? Uh, now, I think if you had a, I think that if you had a glucometer that measured fat energy in your blood as well, like your triglycerides, your free fatty acids, if it just summed up all the fuels in your bloodstream and you were tracking that, that would be really interesting. Um, but even there, you'd see a big dump of fuels into your bloodstream anytime you were uh, sprinting or running or jogging or just preparing to exercise, your fuels will go up. So there are all these dynamic changes that don't really don't really mean anything bad as long as you're nice and thin and you have tons of energy disposal in your in your muscle cells and in your fat cells. I had a patient who was going for an insurance exam and a very healthy patient who juiced but did juice uh, fruit. And his fasting uh, triglycerides were in the low 100s. But after he ate his, drank his juice, the insurance person came to his house, took his triglycerides, and they were a thousand. And they refused them for insurance, for health insurance. Yeah. If you could make but, a comment on that. Oh, well, that's it. So, you know, we have this sort of Randall cycle thing where uh, your body can either burn glucose or fat, one or the other. And if you, pour too much of one or the other in the system. Like if you're, if you flood your body with glucose, fat oxidation completely grinds to a halt until that glucose is gone. Especially if you don't have room in your muscles and in your liver to uh, store that. So in other words, if you, if you did a big uh, depletion workout where you just wrung every bit of glucose out of your muscles and you had no glucose glycogen storage left in your liver and your muscles, you could drink this juice and it would just fall into your muscles and your liver and you would have no problems with your triglycerides. But if you've been eating carbs all day long, day after day, regularly, and you're, and you're not exercising and your muscles are full of glucose and your liver is full of glucose, and then you drink this giant thing of juice, well, now you've you know basically slowed down or halted fat oxidation until all that glucose is gone and that's why you might see these triglycerides stacking up in your bloodstream so i think there you're seeing someone who is basically overloaded glucose even though their liver and muscle glycogen was already full and that's why you want to be kind of careful with carbohydrate you know it carbohydrate is fine if you have tons of glycogen storage available in your liver and your muscles, but most people can only store about 100 grams of glycogen a day in their liver, and you only use muscle glycogen with high-intensity exercise. So if you're not doing any high-intensity exercise and you're eating you know, more than 100 grams of carbs a day, uh, you might see some of these high triglycerides after you drink your giant glass of juice. I don't think it's necessarily a great idea. Interesting. Uh so let's, let's turn to diet. Talk to me about what you feel is the optimal diet for the average American. Okay, so, so humans are hunter-gatherers. 
And uh, humans have a specific diet that we're adapted to. I mean, every mammal on earth has a diet that it's adapted to. You know, your, your lion eats meat, your giraffe eats acacia leaves, your koala eats eucalyptus. Every, every mammal has a diet that it's adapted to. And humans are hunter-gatherers. And we are adapted to basically eating what we can hunt and gather. And, you know, we're, we're persistence hunters. We're good at running long distances. We're good at throwing weapons. We're good at hunting in groups. Uh, we're good at killing these large grazing quadruped herbivores. We're good at, um, you know, gathering things like uh, fruit and nuts and uh, tubers and that sort of thing. And so I think what you really want to do is sort of look at diet through an evolutionary lens and kind of look at what humans are adapted for. And, you know, for, for 2.5 million years, <clears throat> minus the last 10,000 years, we didn't have agriculture. We weren't domesticating plants and animals. You just went out with a, basically your, your spear and whatever you could hunt and gather you ate. Uh, if you look at worldwide hunter-gatherer macronutrient estimates, worldwide, your hunter-gatherers are eating about 33% protein by calories. This is just an extraordinarily high-protein diet. By comparison, in the standard American diet today is about 12.5% calories. So basically, hunter-gatherers are eating three times the protein percentage that we're eating. So my advice to your average person is to eat something that kind of looks like what you'd be eating if you were hunting and gathering. If we just dumped you off in the wilderness with a spear, um, you know, first of all, you're not going to find a lot of plant foods uh, at certain times of the year at certain latitudes. So you're definitely going to be killing an animal and eating the whole thing nose to tail. Um, and uh, when you do find plant foods, it's going to have a lot of fiber. It's not going to be some processed uh, thing where you just sucked all the glucose out of the plant and ate the juice or the flour or the sugar or some refined carb type thing. So, yeah, my advice to the average person is target protein, uh, eat animals in their entirety. Anytime you're eating an entire animal, you're getting this super nutrient density um, you're, you know, like an egg is an entire animal. It literally has everything in it that you need to create and sustain life. So the nutrient density is phenomenal. If you eat anything that looks like a whole animal, like sardines or shellfish or eggs or um, uh, all of these foods have a phenomenal uh, nutrient density, phenomenal protein to energy ratios, phenomenal satiety per calorie. And that's what I'm recommending that people target. And then when you do eat plants, you want to eat a plant that looks more like the entire plant rather than you've just stripped the carbs and the fats out of a plant, the way we do with, you know, sugar and flour and oil. Uh, instead, you want to eat something that looks like you're eating a uh, plant in its entirety, you know, like broccoli or asparagus or spinach or lettuce or something like that. Now, we used, I've heard you talk about the ratio of protein to fat, and you've mentioned how a one-to-one -one ratio is ideal, like, like an egg, or a two-to-one ratio, maybe like a, a, a sirloin steak. Can you talk about the ratio and why that's important and how you kind of look at food through the lens of that ratio? 
Oh, sure. Right. Okay. So I wrote this entire crazy book called the PE diet, and it stands for the protein to energy ratio of your diet. And I'm basically graphing out how many grams of protein is in a food versus grams of non-protein energy, which would be net carbs and fats. And I, in the book, I sort of graph out all of your common foods and I look at the ratio of protein to energy in those foods. And uh, high, basically higher is better and lower is worse. And right at the sort of one-to-one equal grams of protein and non-protein energy is where you see hunter-gatherers tend to be. Um, and that's basically like uh, steak and eggs. I mean, anything where you're eating a, uh, your average steak and eggs meal is going to be exactly equal grams of protein and energy. You have foods that are even higher in protein versus energy, which would be like a leaner cut of beef, like uh like a ground beef might be two to one or a poultry, skinless poultry might be three to one or fish might be four or five to one, depending on how lean it is. So uh, basically the higher you go on protein to energy ratio, the more satiety you get per calorie and people just end up being thinner when they eat these foods. Uh, the opposite is true. The lower you go on the protein to energy ratio, the more energy you're getting carbs and fats for the same amount of satiety, which is bad or typically leads to weight gain. And so all of your grains have this horribly low protein to energy ratio, your wheat, your rice, your corn. Uh, of course, 60% of human calories come from wheat, rice, and corn. So that's been a disaster with agriculture. But yeah, that's how I use the protein to energy ratio, basically to look at all the foods that you might choose. And the goal is to take whatever you're eating now and just aim for a slightly higher protein to energy ratio. If you're cooking something, what kind of oil will you use if you're going to use an oil to cook with? Or will you not use any oil at all? Well, I try to, uh, I try to use, if I'm, if I'm aiming to get thinner, I'm literally using the smallest amount that I can. But I definitely like to cook with fruit oils. Uh, I like uh, avocado oil, olive oil, Avocado oil is my favorite because it has a you know a super high smoke point of 500 degrees, and so I think it's one of the safer um, oils to cook with. I'm not a big fan of your industrial seed oils, which just are super high in omega-6 fatty acids, and we get way too many of those in our diet to begin with. So I like fruit oils, avocado olive oil. I also like things like butter or ghee, um, clarified butter. How about coconut oil? I think coconut oil is fine also. I personally only use avocado oil over that because avocado oil has an even higher smoke point. You, when I interviewed you last time, you told me this whole story, uh, this whole reason, not story, but the reason why people are having so many kind of knee injuries and how you learned this from uh, veterinarian, veterinary medicine. Can you explain that about the oils and the sugar and how it basically crystallizes the tissue and causes it to rip? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, the, okay, there's a couple phenomenon there. Uh, the first one is that the, <clears throat> the tissue quality in your body reflects your dietary composition. Basically, the, the fats in your body start to reflect the fats in your diet. And your connective tissue, all your cells have uh, fatty acids in the cellular membrane around the cell. And then all of your connective tissue are made out of these 
uh, collections of cells together. So the fatty acid composition of your connective tissue starts to reflect the fatty acid composition of your diet. And we see this um, <clears throat> in the animal industry. For like uh, example, uh, pork farmers know that you shouldn't feed too much soybean oil to your pigs because you'll get what's called soft pork. Soft pork is where if you take a pork belly and you lay it on a bucket or something, the ends will flop down. It'll just be really flexible um, if you have soft pork. And that's because you have too much omega-6 fatty acids in the connective tissue. And you'll see that the, if you test the burst strength of the tendons from the soft pork, it's, it's lower. Basically, the tissue quality is not as good. And of course, you can look at omega-6 uh, fatty acid composition of humans today, and it's just going higher and higher and higher because we eat so many industrial seed oils. And this is probably why we're seeing an increase in tendon rupture. You know, now everyone's rupturing biceps tendons and patellar tendons and Achilles tendons. And we see all of these... Um, tendon ruptures these days, and I, I think a lot of it might have to do with the fatty acid composition of our body. The other factor is glycation of, of your connective tissue. So, uh, you know, for example, knee osteoarthritis. So we used to think that you wore out your knees from excessive running um, or something like that, which we now know is just abject garbage. And distance runners are actually protected against osteoarthritis, and they're less likely to get arthritis and wear out their knees. And where we're really seeing all the knee replacements is in diabetics who've never ran a day in their lives and just sit on the couch. And, and what's going on is these people are glycating their cartilage. Their sugar is slightly high all the time. And they're literally caramelizing or cooking their cartilage via the Maillard reaction. It's where if you're glucose in your environment is higher, you're, you sort of caramelize or cook or glycate or denature your, your cartilage. You make it more brittle. If you, if you scope the knee of a young, healthy person with no diabetes, the cartilage is this sort of thick, white, juicy stuff um, with a lot of, uh, uh, I mean, it's very um, durable. And then if you scope the knee of a chronic diabetic with high blood sugars, their knee cartilage is brittle and cracked and yellow and hard, and it just disintegrates. And it's uh, um, the, these so these tissue qualities really go downhill with either diet composition or energy toxicity or high blood sugar or some combination of the three. And that's why we're seeing so many musculoskeletal problems in people on the standard American diet. And what are the seed oils that we should stay away from? So basically, any industrial seed oil, I am not a fan of. Uh, and that's, you know, all of your sunflower oil and your canola oil and your... Now, some of the, some of the seed oils, they are trying to breed these plants to have a lower omega-6 um, quantity. But really, all of them are basically bad. So I don't recommend any nut or seed oils just because the omega-6 quantity is way too high, much higher than a hunter-gatherer would have gotten. You know, your hunter-gatherer might have gotten almost a one-to-one -one ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 
uh, fats in their diet, uh, mostly because your you know your grass fed beef has super high omega three, and your wild caught seafood has super high omega three, and your pastured anything has really high omega three. But your nuts and seeds have an extremely high omega six quantity. So if you're literally just squeezing all the oil out of a bunch of nuts and seeds, like you're doing with this industrial seed oil, you might have 20 to 1 omega-6 to omega-3 ratio, which is just not optimal, in my opinion, for tissue quality. So I, I would basically stay away from anything, anything that has to be processed. You know, like you can just take an olive and squeeze it and get olive oil. Fruit oils are great. You squeeze it, you get oil. This is definitely a reasonable thing to eat. The industrial seed oils, there's this whole process where it has to be bleached and deodorized. It has to be extracted with solvents like hexane, and it's just this 20-step industrial process. And what you're left with is just this very high omega-6, uh, pure energy with no, nutri no nutrient value at all, and it's just really not that healthy in my opinion. There's always this feeling that chicken is healthier than steak. If you're in a restaurant and you're going to order one or the other, can you explain why maybe steak could be healthier? Because especially if it's not grass-fed or organic chicken, but you have to make a choice between the two. Sure. Okay. So your your monogastric animals like fish and chicken, um, <clears throat> the fats in their body is going to greatly reflect the fat that they've been fed. So if you just feed uh, soybeans to uh, fish and chickens, their body fats will start having the same high omega-6 ratio. Uh, monogastric animals uh, that are fermenting, these ruminants like cows, uh, they're actually a little bit better at taking whatever you feed them because they're actually feeding off of the bacteria in their rumen. So you you when you feed a cow and when the cow eats, it's actually feeding the bacteria in its rumen and it's a microbivore it's eating the bacteria uh, it's eating the fermentation products that the bacteria create that's how it's getting a lot of its fatty acids it's getting a lot of its protein from the bacteria itself so your your ruminant herbivore is actually kind of upcycling whatever you gave it to eat and making high higher quality food out of it which is one of the reasons why if I don't know that uh, poultry is pastured or fish is wild caught, you might actually be safer with a ruminant uh, when you're eating out like beef. Your other option is to get just a leaner piece of fish or chicken, like a chicken breast that is going to be naturally low in fat. There's not going to be a lot of omega-6 in that either. So um, frequently I'll choose a leaner uh, chicken if I'm eating out and then, um, Obviously, when I'm at the grocery store myself, I try to vote with my wallet and buy the highest quality I can afford. So I'm looking for grass-fed beef and wild-caught fish and pastured eggs and that sort of thing when possible. And, and how much of what you're eating is, is protein and how much of what you're eating is uh, vegetables or carbohydrates? So my diet uh, is pretty carnivorous. I eat, you know... Uh, about a pound and a half to two pounds of lean meat a day. And then I might eat like a salad or some low sugar fruit. Uh, and that's 
that's the bulk of what I'm eating. I'm a big fan of low sugar fruit like cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and olives and avocados. These are all botanically fruit. And so I actually end up eating more fruit technically than I do vegetables. Uh, but yeah, the bulk of my diet is basically um, uh, animals that are, are as properly raised as I can find, grass-fed beef, wild-caught salmon, fish and seafood, and shellfish, uh, eggs that are pastured, uh, um, poultry, and then this low-sugar fruit like cucumbers and tomatoes and peppers and olives and avocados. And then I do eat some vegetables like salad and that sort of thing. But that's pretty much the bulk of what I'm what I'm eating. You get night cravings for do you get hungry at night? And people that eat like you still get hungry at night. And what should they do? Yes, I do. So what I do, I, I'm trying to uh, in my book, the PE diet. I'm I'm a lot less dogmatic about you know you have to eat you know if low carb is good you need to eat zero carbs. Uh, or if low fat is good, you need to eat zero fat. I'm trying to be anti-dogmatic about it. So I'm trying to be low-ish carb and low-ish fat, but I recognize that a lot of people have to eat, you know, a good 100 grams of carbs a day just to have some liver glycogen so they're not, so they're not hungry. There's this sort of glycogen hunger that if you don't eat a little bit of carbohydrate, you might be absolutely starving and you have to you know, if you tried to eat zero, zero, zero grams of carbs all day long, at the end of the day, you find yourself, you know, standing in your pantry and you're like, well, should I just eat three pounds of macadamia nuts or something because I'm starving for like a little bit of liver glycogen. And my advice is go ahead and eat carbohydrate. I like to, I like people to eat carbohydrate in the evening because this liver glycogen helps the, the, uh, parasympathetic state, this sort of rest and digest state. I think people sleep better. But what I'm recommending is that you eat carbohydrates with the very highest satiety per actual amount of carbohydrate. And that could be something like uh, strawberries, for example. Like if you wanted to eat 100 net grams of carbs from strawberries, that would be four pounds of strawberries. That's 12 cups of strawberries. That's like an obscene amount of strawberries. That's a, like a, a ridiculous quantity of strawberries and nobody could ever eat. So frequently, if I'm still hungry at the end of the night, I might eat something like strawberries or I might actually eat popcorn, which, uh, you know, hundred grams, net grams of popcorn would be 12 cups of popcorn. That's just a huge, huge quantity. So I might eat a little bit of a carbohydrate that has super high satiety per calorie. And uh, I think that's a nice little hack. You know what I mean? Sometimes I'll make a, a little like a protein ice cream in the evening with, uh, you know, a half a cup of almond milk or something, a scoop of protein powder, whey protein powder, and then like, you know, 10 frozen strawberries or something. And I'll throw that in the Vitamix. And it's just, it's like a little bit of protein, a little bit of carbs. And you end up getting a huge amount of satiety when, you, when you're strategic with carbohydrate like this, especially in the evening. Is this what the same type of what you explained to me about how you eat? Is this how you recommend your diabetics eat or pre-diabetics? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Actually, it applies to pretty much everybody. There's, there's nobody that I don't really recommend this same 
pattern two, target protein, eat a super high protein diet, nutrient dense diet, and then you're trying to keep the carbs low and the, and the fat low, but not so low that it inter interferes with your ability to get this protein. The new craze is this whole keto stuff. And uh, how much bacon are you eating? And are you going to get the keto people mad at you if you tell them that you're not eating bacon? Yeah, I've already gotten the keto people mad at me. And I, I literally, instead of eating bacon, which is three grams of fat to two grams of protein, I'm literally eating turkey bacon, which is, you know, five grams of protein to one gram of fat, or Canadian bacon, which is higher in protein than fat. I might eat ham. I might eat sirloin. I'm trying to choose leaner cuts of meat. Uh, I mean, bacon, it's technically the fattest part of the fattest animal that's been artificially fattened to be as fat as possible. And you don't get the best protein to energy ratio from bacon. So I don't actually eat a whole lot of it. I know that's really unpopular. I mean, you know, the keto thing is like carbs are bad. The fewer carbs you eat, the better go all the way to zero and then just eat all the fat you want. And so I'm somewhere kind of in the middle where I'm like, oh yeah, carbs are bad and carbs are, you need to be careful with carbs. You need to be strategic with carbs and everyone's overeating carbs, but you don't really want to replace that with just as much fat as you can possibly eat. Because I see a lot of keto people who stall out from all the nuts and the high fat dairy and the butter and the heavy cream and the oils and the bacon and the keto bricks and the fat bombs and the, all this stuff. And how about low, the low fat diet? Compare that to the low carb diet. And what are the advantages and disadvantages of both? Well, the problem with the standard low fat diet is we just threw all our protein sources out the window you know what i mean like you're gonna get the very lowest fat from something that doesn't have any protein either and that's where we really went wrong with the whole low fat craze is that we got rid of we got rid of protein so what you really want to do is target protein and then be okay with the amount of fat that comes along with it just in nature you know what i mean like if you just randomly go out and kill an animal you're going to get roughly two grams of protein to one gram of fat off the animal carcass. And then you're, you're still going to be hungry for energy. So if you add in some more energy from a plant food, then you're basically fine. And you're at this sort of hunter-gatherer, one-to-one sort of thing. So like killing an entire animal and then finding a piece of fruit or something. This would be like a perfect one-to-one hunter-gatherer ratio. And, and the protein is very high. Protein is prioritized. Carbs are low-ish, but not zero, and fat is low-ish, but not, also not zero. And I think that's kind of the sweet spot. So how about comparing protein in vegetables versus protein in uh, animals? Oh, great question. Well, the problem with plant proteins is that they're basically incomplete. So <clears throat> most of your plant proteins are not going to have the same fully complete array of amino acids. And so it's just uh, suboptimal. There's also uh, this concept of bioavailability or how much of the protein can you actually access when you digest it. Meat is very, very high, very highly bioavailable amino acids and very complete amino acids. Plant foods are, are vastly inferior. So, you know, for example, if you're a bodybuilder and you're using you know, pea protein or hemp protein or rice protein to get your, um, to get your 
protein, you basically end up having to eat twice as much to get the same amount of a full complement of amino acids. So it's just not as good. And how about these protein powders that people uh, that eat that people eat? I'm not a big fan of whey powder. How do you feel about that? Um, I think it's suboptimal. I think you get more satiety from eating real food. So I'm not as excited about supplementing with protein, but I don't think it's terrible. And I think you can get away with the, some amount of that. And how about whey compared to casein or a different type of bodybuilder proteins? Do you, do you like one over the other? Well, I think they're basically okay. I do prefer casein because it's a slower absorbed, slower digesting protein that kind of sticks around longer, which I think is the way protein's designed to function just because it takes so long to digest a steak or something. So I think whey is a little bit artificial and the satiety is not quite as good. And look, if we look at vegetarians, I have a lot of patients that are vegetarians because of religious reasons. Mm -hmm. They're very un they seem to be very unhealthy. Their cardiovascular system typically is bad. They have a they seem to be more diabetic and more eye more even more vascular eye problems. And you know, people think that maybe veganism is healthier, but I guess you have to eat it, do it properly. And it seems like they they're sarcopenic. They really don't have a lot of mu muscle mass. And I was just wondering if you could comment on that. Am I observing that right, or am I observing it incorrectly? No, I, I unfortunately think you're observing it right. I mean, I have a few vegan patients who are doing it right and they're very healthy, but a lot of people are doing it wrong and then they're getting uh, very low protein intakes and way too much um, energy and they're, you're just not any healthier. So I, I see the same thing. And I just want to, uh, the last question I want to ask you is, is to go back to intermittent fasting. How do you recommend intermittent fasting and what time of the day do you recommend people fast if they're going to do intermittent fasting? And obviously, uh, intermittent fasting probably isn't for thin people. It's more for a heavier person. Right. The more overweight you are, the more you can get away with fasting. And so it does scale up or down with the amount of body fat you have. But I think 16-8 uh, is really the sweet spot. And my number one recommendation for almost everyone is to try a, a 16 8 intermittent fast where you're fasting for 16 hours and eating for eight hours i think this is a really good i think fasting like everything else on earth is on a u-shaped curve and you don't want too much of it or too little of it and i i personally really like the 16 8 uh, which is basically skipping breakfast and eating lunch and dinner in an eight hour window that's what i do well i want to thank dr Naiman for spending an hour with us today it was a great conversation. If people want to find out more about you, they want to get your book, how can they do that? Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, the best the best way to get the book is to go to thepediet.com uh, and uh, uh, download it there. But um, I'm also on Twitter at Ted Naiman, and I'm on Facebook uh, at Burn Fat Not Sugar. Uh, and so you can just check me out at any of those places. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes.